This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, June 15th, 2020. I'm Caleb Brown. It's a pattern that plays out pretty regularly when police or a government agency is given new powers to address a narrow problem. Those powers somehow get used to address other problems. In the case of contact tracing to attempt to limit the spread of the coronavirus, police agencies are already chomping at the bit to use that information for other purposes. Cato's Matthew Feeney and Patrick Eddington comment. Many listeners will be familiar with contact tracing in the context of the ongoing pandemic as primarily a public health endeavor. The idea here being that in the middle of pandemic, it's good to know where people are, where they've been. And in pursuing a effective contact tracing regime, uh, governments all across the world have adopted different methods. Uh, here in the US, we've seen uh, lawmakers and officials talking about traditional contact tracing, which is using human beings to track down people and interview them to find out information. There have been other discussions about Bluetooth technology, uh, as well as old-fashioned surveillance. And the, the worry is, and what uh, Patrick's done a great job of doing at Cato with his Big Brother timeline, is showing how time and time again, the technologies deployed and methods deployed are never reserved for the event or the catastrophe for which they're originally deployed. So whether that's a terrorist attack or a war or a natural disaster, uh, we shouldn't expect for the surveillance technologies to go back in the box they came from. And I don't view COVID-19 as any different. And unfortunately, the confluence of uh, the pandemic with uh, protests about the murder of George Floyd offer, I think, a, a depressing example of how law enforcement could use the ongoing pandemic as an excuse uh, to gather up uh, more information uh, principally aimed at protesters. It is natural for uh, law enforcement agencies to want to make use of information that exists that could be useful to deal with some problem to suddenly apply it to help solve a different problem. Right, Pat? That has been the history of uh, law enforcement and, and intelligence activities uh, in the United States for the last 120 years, if you look at the actual full-on record. And, and we, sit, we saw it this past week, uh, this, this repurposing, if you will, uh, of federal assets, whereby the Attorney General, Mr. Barr, uh, issued a, a two-page memo in which he basically turned the DEA loose. Uh, on these protesters, uh, allowing them to engage in in all manner of of covert activity. I mean, he actually spells it out here in the in the last paragraph of of the document itself. Uh, uh, DEA special agents and task force officers will, as necessary, one conduct covert surveillance and protect against threats to public safety. You know, no, nothing remotely uh, specific about that. Share intelligence with federal, state, local, and tribal counterparts. No limits on that. If necessary, intervene as federal law enforcement officers to protect both participants and spectators in the protest. Now, I think we kind of know how that's been going. And four, if necessary, engage in investigative and enforcement activity, including but not limited to conducting interviews, conducting searches, and making arrests for violations of federal law. I think it's safe to say that uh, probably about the only violations of federal law that we're going to see the DEA engage in in this little operation uh, are protesters out there uh, exercising their First Amendment rights. Um, you know, I, I've been, and and I think I'm I'm like you, Caleb. Um, I I saw that video of George Brown uh, being George Floyd. The only way, yeah, Floyd. Uh, well, they're all running together for me now. I think that that's part of the problem. I mean, you go with Eric Garner, and 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 you go with 
uh, with Brown and Ferguson and all the rest of this over the last seven, eight years. And that, that's just in the last seven or eight years. Um, and, and it's just open season on black men in America. I mean, I, I think most people in the African-American community would say it's been open season for four centuries, but it, it's the level of intensity I think that we have seen um, really can be attributed in large measure to this president. Um, I, I, I'm just going over in my mind the image of what happened in Charlottesville with that right-wing lunatic, racist right-wing lunatic driving into that crowd of people. And that's transposed in my mind now with that NYPD SUV driving through a crowd of protesters in New York City just this past week. And and for me, it, it, it's just been um, a, another lesson in this whole issue of how out of control state power can be used to crush people. What you uh, just described with respect to uh, the lack of specificity of of the authorities that have been given to the DEA, however temporarily, uh, reminds me a lot of the fights that uh, we had maybe, I guess it's almost 10 years ago now, over fusion centers. Yes, which amazingly, when the late Senator Tom Coburn was, was the chairman of the Senate uh, Homeland Security and Government Affairs Committee, in 2012, they put out a report in which they effectively described these fusion centers as de facto Fourth Amendment violation factories. So detail, tell me what are fusion centers and, and, what, and uh, what happened to them? So these, these are uh, post 9-11 uh, uh, creations, essentially, at the state level, where state, local, and federal law enforcement all have a presence, and where the data sharing uh, essentially is largely pushed down from the feds to the locals, but a lot of it also flows back up from the locals in the state to the feds. And these things were basically created essentially as, you know, counterterrorism centers. You know, that, that's how they were sold, um, as everything else was sold to the public in, in the post-9-11 environment. And the, the level of data gathering that they engage in is, is rather remarkable. And what, what Coburn and his colleagues found when they did the report in 2012 is that these centers were not responsible for stopping a single terrorist attack on this country and that they were routinely violating uh, the Fourth Amendment rights uh, of American citizens in each of the states in which these things operated. And, and they're still operating to this day. I mean, they have, they have become a fixture. So uh, one of the problems that was identified years ago by uh, Dave Ritgers, uh, who, who formerly of the Cato Institute, uh, was that these fusion centers, uh, the way that they operated, really short-circuited the process of intelligence gathering and the people who were essentially in charge of gathering intelligence were people who have no expertise in gathering intelligence. I would definitely say that that was almost certainly the case uh, in the early years of this. Um, it's probably less the case now, and none of us should take any uh, should take any solace from that because it, it, it's a manifestation of the institutionalization of these things. And, and I I continue to point to that whole fusion center phenomenon as just another example of how once some kind of of uh, fused law enforcement intelligence entity is created in this country for whatever purpose. Trying to make it go away really becomes uh, virtually impossible. You know, Coburn did his best to get these things defunded when he was in the Senate, uh, but he could never get his colleagues to go along with it, and, and so they've they've now become uh, a, a, you know potentially permanent fixtures uh, unless we have you know a, a large movement that rises up to essentially you know try to defund them. 
Uh, Matthew, what is your biggest concern with the uh, with government involvement in the process of contact tracing using something more uh, technological than actual humans to engage in the process? My main concern about uh, the technologies that have been outlined is that they won't be reserved to the current moment. I think many of us can imagine a situation in traditional contact tracing where health officials go around and they interview people. And then there are certainly privacy concerns, you know, what's going to happen with those interviews, uh, the, the, the paperwork, uh, the digital records about those interactions. But there are discussions about using technologies such as uh, Bluetooth-based contact tracing that uh, are, of course, I think, slightly more uh, intrusive. And, and private companies can give us assurances about the privacy uh, safeguards they have in place. But we should remember that law enforcement is oftentimes very keen to get its hands on private sector information in order to conduct surveillance that has nothing to do uh, with the initial uh, incident that acts as the genesis of the surveillance. So at the moment, we're in uh, the middle of COVID-19, but there are also protests going on. Uh, and I'm reminded of, of another example uh, that uh, shortly after 9-11, the U.S. government, with its new uh, Department of Homeland Security, started flying predator drones on the border, uh, the northern and southern border of this country. And only in the last few days, we've seen that those drones have been deployed over Minneapolis in order to keep an eye on protesters. Uh, how many people in the wake of 9-11 thought that these uh, new authorities and new pieces of technology would have their cameras pointed at American citizens exercising their First Amendment rights uh, is unfortunately that there are people on that list for sure. Civil liberties act activists and Fourth Amendment experts are certainly on that list, but the list wasn't long enough. And I don't think we should be naive going forward in the midst of COVID-19. Whatever technology law enforcement deploy uh, in the fight against the pandemic, they're not going to give it up uh, very willingly or easily uh, because they'll always be able to point to another incident, another disaster for which they think surveillance will act as a remedy. And and in that connection, I should note that this so-called temporary authorization by the Attorney General for the DEA to do all these other things uh, supposedly is only going to last for 14 days with the clock starting on May 31st. So clearly on or about, uh, I'd say June 9th or June 10th, uh, maybe a little bit later than that, I'll be filing a FOIA <laughs> to find out whether or not it has in fact terminated if there is not a, a formal announcement or whether some kind of extension, uh, you know, has been granted. Uh, so I just think we're going to have to keep an eye on all that kind of stuff. And I just want to jump in real quick on, the, on this whole issue of, of contact tracing, particularly like in a digital context. Every one of these contact tracing proposals that involves an app is built on one very, very uh, critical assumption. And that is that the testing itself the assay testing itself that is done in a laboratory or potentially in your doctor's office, or maybe finally when we actually get, you know, swab kits that we can use for ourselves and, you know, send them in to Quest Diagnostics or, or another firm, it presumes that those things have a sufficient level of specificity and accuracy to make this entire system work. And what we know right now about the existing tests that are out there is that they, they don't pass muster. And, and so you, what you could wind up with uh, is a situation whereby you get these tests out there. Let's say you have a false positive rate of 5% and a false negative rate of 5%. You're potentially going to be telling thousands of people who 
uh, are asymptomatic and are not infected, that they are infected, and they'll go into quarantine. And you may be telling people uh, who are, in fact, carriers and are infected that they're not. And they wind up going out there and, and becoming potentially super spreaders and so on and so forth. So that, that's my number one issue um, when it comes to the practical aspect of just trying to do this. I, I, we're, we're not there yet. And I, I don't know exactly when we will be there, uh, if we'll ever actually be there. Hopefully we will. But even after that, a lot of the issues that Matthew has raised, I think, are definitely going to be with us. And given the fact that the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, or HIPAA, has got a law enforcement, a very broad law enforcement carve out uh, written into it. I have just general concerns about, you know, the maintenance of any data uh, on people for any kind of length of time that law enforcement might be able to get their their hands on for reasons that may have absolutely nothing to do, uh, you know, with actual pandemic containment. Matthew Feeney directs Cato's project on emerging technologies. Patrick Eddington is a research fellow at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you please and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 